mother and I are getting a divorce. 45 years of misery is enough. He said, Pop, what are you talking about? He says, you know what? We can't stand each other any longer. We're sick and we're tired of each other and I'm sick of talking about this. So you call your sister in Chicago and you tell her and he hangs up the phone. Well, Frannick, the son picks up the phone. He calls his sister in, in, in Chicago. She explodes. Well, that's what they think. That's what they think. That's not going to happen. Immediately, she calls her dad and says, listen, you are not getting a divorce. Don't do a single thing until we get there. We're both coming out. Don't do anything until we'll get there. We'll be there tomorrow. She hangs up. He hangs up, turns to his wife and says, honey, I got great news for you. They're both coming for Christmas. And they're paying their own way this time. Great. And the point is this, we have all been fooled at one time or another and probably will be fooled again. But there's one thing a person can never be fooled into and that is a personal relationship with God. See, as we look back at this past year and look forward to what lies ahead, I think it's very appropriate to take some time to separate the important from the urgent and the eternal from the temporal. I have been asked on a, on a number of occasions by uh, the loved ones, the family members of, loved, of a loved one, to uh, visit that person at their deathbed, to offer words of hope and words of encouragement. And each experience was a vivid reminder of the brevity of life and the inevitability of death. This past week, I came across a TV special that was dedicated to remembering those celebrities from various walks of life who passed from this life to the next in the year 2001. Dick Schapp, Jack Lemmon, Dorothy McGuire, Perry Como, Carol O'Connor, yes, even Archie Bunker, could not escape the grasp of death. Anthony Quinn, Dale Evans, Harvey Martin, Aaliyah, George Harrison, to name only a few. Also, we were reminded quite graphically as a nation of the brevity of life by the tragic events at the World Trade Center and the Pentagon and those tragic and doomed airplane flights. The point is not many, if any, mentioned entered the year 2001 thinking this would be the year in which they would pass from this life to the next. And as a result, many found themselves tragically unprepared. It's been said that, it's been said that all of life is but a preparation for death. The psalmist said, what man is he that lives that shall not see death? This is supposed to be a free-thinking age of radical experiment. We've sought to change the world and the laws which govern it through knowledge and science. We talk of cloning, inventions and discovery, philosophy, materialistic thinking. You know, we've tried to enthrone the false gods of money and fame and human intelligence. But however we try, the end is always the same. It is appointed unto man to die once, and then comes judgment. In the midst of life, if you stop and think about it, we see death on every hand. You know, the wail of an ambulance, 
And in fact, as I was preparing this message, I read about and heard my son talk about we was driving down Catella near Glacelle the other day in the city of Orange and saw the body of a young boy that they had just covered who had been skateboarding across the street. We see the illuminated mortuary signs, the graveyards we so frequently pass, and the sight of a hearse threading its way through traffic, and it all reminds us that death may call for us at any moment. And none of us can be sure when the exact moment will be, but we are all aware of the fact that it may come at any time. Someone has said the only thing, certain thing about life is death. As we close another business year, our, my partner and I, we come to the end of a year and our fiscal and calendar years are the same. And as we try every way that we can to, uh, to defer our tax liabilities, uh, we are always reminded that we may defer it, but we cannot avoid it. And the same is true of death. While we try to defer it as best we can, we cannot avoid it. From the moment a child is born, the death process and the fight against it begins. Think about it. Think of a mother who devotes years of attention to protecting the life of her child. She watches the food, the clothes, the environment, medical checkups, inoculations, but in spite of all her loving care, the child has already begun to die. Before many years, the tangible signs of weakness will be obvious. The dentist will check our teeth for the decay. Glasses will be needed to help improve our fading vision. What I used to be able to shrink down to 70%, I now raise to 141%. <laughs> Skin will wrinkle and sag as time passes and our shoulders will droop and our step will become slower and less sure and the brittleness of our bones will increase as our energy lessens. Somebody had emailed me something that has to do with you know you're old. And I started to ask my wife if I can share them, and, and um, she, she said, no. <laughs> so I'm, I'm trying to remember which one she said was okay. She said, old is, oh, old is when your friends compliment you on your new alligator shoes, only to discover that you're barefoot. Getting lucky means you find a parking space at the mall during Christmas, things like that. So the rest, they're really funny, um, but <laughs> as we've discovered, humor is a very personal, subjective thing here, so we'll pass on that. But if you think about it, almost without realizing it, we've begun to move a step closer to death. You know, it's a journey we must all take, and yet I know folks who spend more time preparing for their vacations. If you stop and think about it, you know, getting maps of the area, talking to people who had been there, checking the weather reports, checking flights, checking hotels, checking the car rentals, checking everything that you can. They spend more time preparing for vacation and that trip than the inevitable trip that we must all make when we pass from this life to the next. And I think it's foolish that we avoid the subject. And many are unprepared or ill-prepared. I came across an article in the Orange County Register in the sports section that was, it reads as this. The teenager was in his dorm room, the grandfather in his hospital room. The teenager lay in his twin bed, the grandfather in his deathbed. The teenager spoke as the grandfather listened. It was a miracle of modern technology and old-fashioned family. On November 30th, in a Phoenix hospital, Herman Carmichael told the doctors he was tired and it was time he decided to turn off the machines. He deferred it, but he couldn't avoid it. He had said goodbye to everyone except Ryan, 
and in the hospital with the family gathered around for, for the bed, an uncle pressed a cell phone to Herman's ear. In the dorm with teammates and roommates by his side, UCLA guard Ryan Walcott tried to hold his cordless steady. The teenager who hadn't even been trusted with UCLA's offense was now be being asked to voice the last words his grandfather would ever hear. I didn't know what to say. I didn't even want to talk to him. But if he had passed without me saying something, saying anything at all, it would have been terrible. He stopped crying long enough to utter one sentence. He said, Daddy Bert, I love you. See, and having witnessed firsthand such moments, I can tell you that there is a sense of temporary comfort, but nothing compared to the certainty and assurance of what can be expected on the other side of death's door according to the word of God and according to his authority. 1 Thessalonians 4 says, regarding the dead, my brethren, I don't want you to be ignorant. And he goes on and he says, and comfort one another with these words, with the words of God, the authority of God, because the only God is in a position to be able to guarantee what lies ahead and what we can expect. You and I could comfort one another and say it's going to be better, but you know what? We have no authority to say that. It's going to be okay, but we can't guarantee that because we're not the ones who have the authority to determine who gets in and who does not. Only the words of God can comfort those at a time like that. See, if you stop and think about it, the, the good news, if, if you know people who, who do not know the good news of God's love, you could not choose a chapter of the Bible more wisely than the third chapter of the Gospel of John. For it is a chapter that deals very briefly and clearly with how to know with a certainty where you will go when you make that journey from this life to the next. See, and what is good for dying men and women is good for every one of us. And that's because we are all dying men and women. And so if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 3 because this is, a, this is a tremendous passage. It's a message of hope. It is not a doom and gloom message whatsoever. It is the greatest news that any human being can ever hear that with great certainty we can know. And I call it this. This is a life-saving message to all dying people. A life-saving message to all dying people. And John chapter 3 will begin with the words found in verse 1. It says this. It says, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you've come from God as a teacher. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. For that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. It says, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from or where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered and said, are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? 
Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak that which we know and bear witness of that which we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I told you earthly things and you don't believe, how shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from it, even the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes may in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. You know, as I've read this chapter, I, I continually am reminded of questions or things that I hear people say on a regular basis. And I hear people say, you know what? Well, the Bible is just not relevant. The Bible is just not practical. The Bible is not relevant for today's world. You know, you hear stuff like that all the time. And the first thing I think about is this. Have you ever read it? I mean, seriously, have you read it? I can't believe that people say it's not relevant, it's not practical, it doesn't offer anything to anyone. It's like, man, you haven't read what I just read. In this passage, four things stand out as they relate to a life-saving message to the dying. First thing that we're going to take a look at is what I would call the, uh, the character of the person who is coming to Jesus and, and asking the question that leads to the response that we see in this passage. The character of the person who comes to him. Uh, this man, Nicodemus, he came to Jesus wanting to know with certainty how he could be part of the kingdom of God. The Jews recognized and understood throughout their, their history that God had promised to send a savior into the world and that when this savior would come, he would establish his kingdom and that that kingdom would have no end. He wanted to make sure, Nicodemus wanted to make sure that when Jesus came or the Messiah came, he wasn't sure who Jesus is, but he knew that when the Messiah came, that he would establish this kingdom and that he would conquer all of their enemies, including the greatest enemy of all, and that was death itself. Throughout the nations of the, the generations of the nations of Israel, every person there has been, had been touched, as we are often touched and as we will be touched by the reality and the inevitability of death. The greatest enemy of man is death. And so Nicodemus, knowing that the Messiah would come, the Savior would come and conquer all the enemies of Israel, including death, he wanted to make sure that he would be part of the coming kingdom. He wanted to make sure with certainty and assurance, but he didn't have that in his heart. He wasn't sure. Today, I would, I would liken it to any of us who would want to know with certainty or assurance that when I die, I'm going to heaven. I want to know that. I don't want to guess. I don't want to be, you know, comforted by someone who says, well, I hope it all works out. I don't want anybody coming to my, my funeral saying, well, wherever he is, I'm sure he's irritating people just like he did us. <laughs> you know, I, 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 wanna, I want some certainty. I want some clarity. I want some assurance that when I leave this life, I want to know where I'm heading. Nicodemus was no different than every one of us. He wanted to know with certainty where he was going and how he could be assured that he would get there. The first thing that we notice about him, it's, it's uh, given to us, is that he was a Pharisee. 
The Pharisees were deeply religious folks who had a great love for the Old Testament scriptures. They practiced their faith. They lived out what they said they believed. Uh, they lived it out by fasting and tithing, giving, uh, giving to the needy, regular prayer. And yet what's interesting about this is, is that even as religious a guy as he was, he had no certainty or assurance as to where he would go when he died. He had no certainty and he had no assurance that when the Savior came and established his kingdom, that he would even be part of it. See, what I have discovered in my life, and many of you have probably discovered in yours or those around you, is this, that religion creates a thirst that can never quench. Religion creates an appetite that it could never satisfy. He was a deeply religious person dedicated to studying the scriptures and not just studying it, but also living it to the best that he could. Fasting and praying and giving and offering himself to God. And yet in his own heart, he had no peace or assurance of his relationship to God. I was immediately reminded of the rich young ruler who came to Christ and said, what, you know, how can I be assured that when I die that I'll go to heaven? How can I be assured of my relationship with God? And Jesus said, go and sell everything. After he had told him to live out the commands of God, and he said, but I've done that. I've done that my whole life. I've done, to the best of my ability, everything I knew God wanted me to do, I've done it, and I'm still frustrated, and I'm still confused. And Jesus said, there's one thing you lack. Just go and sell everything and come and follow me. And he said, in that, he turned away, and he was saddened because he was a man of much material goods. And seeing what Jesus had exposed to him was something that he did not see. And that was that he did not love the Lord his God with all his heart, all his mind, and all his soul or strength. The greatest commandment is love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And what he exposed to him was this, you love money more than you love God. And you're blinded to it and don't even see it. And so he challenged him in that area to expose what God already knew about his heart. And that was his heart was wicked and deceitful above all else. He was a sinner like everybody else. Even though he was religious, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None are, no, none are righteous, no, not one. And each of us have turned our back on God and have run from him. That is the reality of every human being. And that's why the soul that sins shall surely die. See, Nicodemus, as religious a guy as he was, knew something was still missing in his relationship with God. And he came to Jesus, and Jesus would help him to see that. We're also told that he was a ruler, meaning he was a member of the Sanhedrin. There were 70 members of the Sanhedrin. They were the Jewish ruling council. They were the elite of the nation of Israel. Uh, they were responsible for religious decisions and also under the Romans for civil rule to make sure that the Jewish nation kept in check under the authority of the Roman government. So Nicodemus was a man of considerable influence and power. A man, think of the irony of this, a man who many came to to ask religious questions or that of spiritual significance. He was a person that people came to looking for direction as to how to be right with God. And every time he gave some counsel, it just reminded him the irony of, of me giving counsel to you when I don't even have peace with God myself. But in the position it is in, he couldn't be open and honest about it or transparent, could he? It's like, oh, you know, I'm, I don't really know. 
I'm still seeking, I'm still searching myself. Good luck, if you find anything out, come on back and talk to me. I mean, could you imagine if they had been honest with people that were coming for religious direction, spiritual insight, if they had told them that, hey, you know what, I can't help you, but I don't want to lose my job. So they just bluffed their way through it. Lastly, we're told, and I'll call him a reasonable person. And what I mean by a reasonable person, he's a person who was intelligent. He looked at the evidence. He searched the scripture. He was checking into things. I mean, you know, he didn't check his brains out at the door. He was a man that was observing what was going on around him, trying to ascertain what it was that was going on so he can make some decisions as to who God is in his relationship with God. So our, our faith is a reasonable faith. Our faith involves the intellect, but not the intellect alone. And I'll talk more about that in a second. It's just part of it. But it does involve our intellect. You know, I hear people often talking about, you know, Christians as being weak-minded folks who believe in God and live by faith as if our faith isn't based on any substance. Wishful thinking. Faith is not wishful thinking. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, but it's developed on the evidence that has been given to us. Faith always follows facts. There are facts that precede faith, biblical faith. We understand what it is we believe. I know whom I have believed in and I know why. And I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have given him against the day of the judgment of God. I, am, I know that. I know it in my mind. And, and Nicodemus, like Saul of Tarsus, by the way, also another Pharisee, was a brilliant man of high social standing who came to Jesus seeking answers to his questions. He had observed the facts. He had examined the evidence. He had said, I know that you've, you're a teacher who has come from God for nobody can do these signs that you do unless God is with you. There was never any question in his mind as to the reality of the miracles, the signs, and the wonders that Jesus did. He saw them, he observed them, and as a result, they attracted him to Jesus as they were designed by God to do so. And we'll talk a little bit about that. See, we're told, if you look at the passage, it says that he came to him, and this man came to him at night. The old saying has it, it's better late than never. And so it was with Nicodemus. He came to Jesus at night. And the principle is this, it is better to come to him in the darkness than to not to come to him at all. He came to him at night, you know, and there's a lot of, you know, debate on what that means. Why did he come to him at night? Was he ashamed to be seen with Jesus because, you know, the, the Sanhedrin or the Jewish ruling council wasn't really sure who he was. They, they weren't too excited about him. Uh, you know, in fact, in many times they said he was a blasphemer and they plotted to kill him, as we'll see. But the bottom line was, it says, you know, so they debate. Well, he came to him at night because he was, you know, afraid to be seen with him. Maybe that's the case. Maybe he came to him at night because it was the best time of the day to come to him because the busyness of the day was over. Maybe he came to him at night because everybody else had gone home and it was a perfect time to be caught alone with Jesus and be able to ask him the questions that were on his heart and have an open and transparent conversation without worrying about protecting his image and his standing in his community. He came to him at night. The point is, regardless of why he came to him at night, what his motives were, the reality of it was he came to him. And we often hear people talk about, you know, people coming to church. Well, they only came to church because, you know, they got coerced into coming to church and then they were going to go to lunch afterwards. 
know, only came to church because it was the right thing to do. It was Christmas and didn't want to upset anybody around the family. Came to church for all kind of different reasons and all kind of different motivations. Came to church because blah, 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 blah. You know what? And all I say is this, hey, they're here. Praise God. See, because if they hear the truth, God's truth will not go out and come back empty. So regardless of their heart, regardless of their motives, regardless of why Nicodemus went to Jesus, the reality of it is he went to him, and by going to him, he will now be exposed to the truth. And it's the truth that sets people free. And the beauty of all of this, he's gone to him at night. Maybe he's being prudent. Maybe he didn't want to commit until he heard what Jesus had to say. Maybe he wanted to examine the facts, being the intelligent person that he is. And you know what? And who can fault him for any of that? But just thank God that he showed up. In any case, he came to him. And what we learn from that is this. All hours are convenient for Christ. All hours. When others are tired or others are asleep or others are too busy, Jesus is still awake. He's available 24-7, never, never closes for business with a person wanting to get serious with God. And Nicodemus came to Jesus, and by doing so, he demonstrated that he was a wise man. And you know what? And wise men still seek him today. Nicodemus came to Jesus because he recognized that God was certainly with him because no one could do the things that Jesus did unless God was with him. But that admission also demonstrated something about Nicodemus, and that's the second thing, and that is this. It demonstrated the confusion in his heart regarding the identity of Jesus Christ. It exposed the confusion in his heart. And the confusion is demonstrated by his calling Jesus a teacher. Notice what he says. He says that this man came to him by night saying to him, Rabbi or teacher, we know that you've come from God as a teacher. Come from God as a teacher. You know, the irony of all of it is that later in this passage that we just read, Jesus turns to Nicodemus and says, wait a minute, let me get this right. You are the teacher of Israel, and the teacher of Israel comes to Jesus and calls Jesus a teacher. Notice the difference there. The irony of all of it is that Jesus calls Nicodemus the definite article, the, the teacher of all of Israel, the greatest teacher of them all. And Nicodemus' view of Jesus is way down here, and we know that you are a teacher. A teacher? Meaning what? A teacher, one of many teachers. The same confusion exists in our world today, where we will find people who will all agree that Jesus is a great teacher. Great teacher, great man, great philosopher. You know, the things that he taught were things that, you know, mankind should embrace. But he was a teacher, one of many teachers. And then they take it a little further, and then they establish churches or cults that say is, he is a God, one of many gods. He's just lump summed with everybody else. You know, there's nothing significant, nothing great about him. He's just a teacher, a special teacher, granted, because what he did, nobody else was doing, but he was a teacher, one of many teachers. And yet he was looking at the evidence, trying to figure it all out and put it all together. And it was certain, while it was certainly true that Jesus was a great teacher, the signs, the miracles, and the wonders were designed by God to do a specific thing. And I want you to turn with me to Luke chapter 7. 
Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Luke chapter 7, and I want you to see very clearly that there was a purpose or a reason behind everything Jesus did and certainly behind everything that God does. In Matthew chapter 7, starting with verse 18, we read these words. It says, And the disciples of John the Baptist reported to him about all these things. Well, what were these things? I mean, they were amazing things. I mean, the things that Jesus was doing was just unheard of throughout the history of mankind. And there's a centurion slave who had been regarded by him was sick and about to die. It goes on to talk about how he healed that person, how he raised the, the son of the widow of Nain. He felt compassion for her, touched her, and, and, and raised her from the dead, raised him from the dead, the son. And it says, and the disciples of John in verse 18 reported to him about all these things, man. Can you imagine what's going on? It says, in summoning two of his disciples, John sent them to the Lord saying, are you the expected one? Who? The one we've been waiting for. Who was that? The savior of the world, the promised Messiah. Are you the one? Or do we look for someone else? When the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, are you the expected one? Or do we look for someone else? You know what? This is, this is an amazing thing. Oftentimes you hear people say, Jesus never claimed to be God. Really? And this is, uh, the same people would say, you know what, there's nothing in the Bible that's practical or relevant. Because if you read it, you will know that he did many times definitively and with great clarity claim to be the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the one who had been promised by God throughout all of eternity. And here's another example that if Jesus was not the expected one, the Savior of the world, the Messiah, he would have an opportunity here to deny it. But notice what he does. Are you the one that we're looking for or do we look for someone else? At that very time, he cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits and he granted sight to many who are blind. What a beautiful word picture. Can you imagine asking that question and all of a sudden you look all around you and blind people can now see and lame people can now walk and, and, and people that have a diseased all their life were healed instantaneously, immediately. I mean, it was happening all around them. And he said, he answered and said to them, go and report to John what you have just seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to, him, to them and blessed is he who keeps from stumbling over me. Is that an awesome picture? Go tell John what you just saw, and I guarantee you, John will doubt no more. And I guarantee you, the ones with the message didn't doubt anymore either. Did they struggle with it on occasions? Probably just like we all do. But the reality of it is, is this, is that those signs were to create a wonder and an awe in those who saw it. And the Bible says in Matthew 9, verses 1 through 8, and John 20, 26 through 31. In fact, go back to the book of John. Let's take a look at that. Uh, John 20, 26 through 31. Notice the purpose of these miracles or these signs. After eight days, again, his disciples were inside and Thomas with them. Now, remember, this is after Jesus had been crucified on the cross. He was, he was killed. He was put into a grave. Three days later, he raised from the dead. His disciples had already seen him after his resurrection and Thomas wasn't there. And Thomas said, you know what? I don't believe you and I won't believe it until I see him and I touch his wounds, then I'll believe. This is what's happening. After eight days again, his disciples were inside and Thomas this time was with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut and he stood in their midst and said, peace be with you. 
Right at that point, I'm thinking Thomas is thinking, it may be with the rest of them, but it ain't with me. Then he said to Thomas, reach here your finger and see my hands and reach here your hand and put it into my side. And he not unbelieve, be not unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. His intellect examined the facts. His heart, his emotions. There is a sorrow unto repentance. And his will said, not my will no more, but yours be done. You are my Lord and my God. Intellect, emotions, and will are involved, and we'll see that in our text. Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Many other signs, therefore, Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. The purpose of everything that he did was to point people to the reality of his identity, that he is the Savior of the world. Back to John chapter 3. Jesus, knowing Nicodemus' thoughts, which isn't tough for God to do. He's already demonstrated in the book of John. We saw that in John chapter 1. If you read back, you find that Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Well, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming and said, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom... There is no guile, no hypocrisy. What you see with them is what you get. So Nathanael said to him and said, how do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, because before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Whatever he was doing, Jesus knew. And Nathanael answered and said, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus, I'm sure with a smile on his face, he said, just because I knew what you were thinking and what you were doing, you haven't seen anything yet, brother. I mean, you have not seen anything yet. Back to John chapter 3. As we go back, we notice that Jesus, knowing Nicodemus' thoughts, answered his unspoken question. And the question was, how can I be certain that I'll have a place in the kingdom of God? Or our unspoken question, God, how can I be certain when I die I'm going to heaven? Before we examine this in greater detail for now, you know, we see that Nicodemus didn't understand what Jesus was talking about. Notice what he said. He confused this spiritual birth for a physical birth. Just the fact he answered the question meant that he was disqualified from ever seeing the kingdom of God. Jesus said, you must have, be born again, a spiritual birth. And Nicodemus said, you know what, I understand. The fact he didn't understand identified for him that he needed to understand or he'd never see the kingdom. Today, people will say, you must be born again. People go, what are you talking about? I don't understand. I'm not a born again Christian. I'm a, you know, Presbo Baptist dumping another Christian. You know, I'm not a born-again Christian. I said, what, what do you mean, born again? And just the fact that a person would say, what do you mean, born again, is an indicator that, you know what, you better know and understand what it means to be born again, because unless you're born again, you're not going to heaven. Whoa. See, he disqualified himself by asking the question. And so as he went further, he confused it with a physical birth. What, you're going to say that I can be born again? I understand. How can an old man go back in his mother's womb, start all over again, and be born again? Many of us would love to start our lives over again. But the reality of it is we cannot. God deals with us in the present. And so therefore, as we look at this, Nicodemus confused, as many do today, thinking in terms of the external or the physical. 
There are people who think, well, my family has always gone to such and such a church, therefore, that's how I think I'm going to get into heaven. Or I belong to a certain denomination, or I attend a certain church, or I go to a Bible study, or I've been baptized, or I've been confirmed, or I've had communion, or, or, or whatever the external ritual is. You know, I give to the poor, I do good works, and blah, blah, blah. You know, all those things, the confusion of the external or the physical, indicated that Nicodemus didn't understand what it was that Jesus was saying. And so it's important, and his confusion was further demonstrated in verse 9, when even after Jesus explained everything, he said, I still don't get it. How can this be? I don't understand what you're saying. Think about that. All the human wisdom in the world, all the highest degrees earned, cannot cause one to know what it means to be born again. Can you imagine the irony of that? of knowing everything that this world has to offer, but not knowing how to get into heaven. See, because it's not something that flesh and blood can reveal. It's only something that God can reveal. In the book of Matthew, chapter 16, Jesus, talking to his disciples, said to him one day, who do people say that I am? What's the scuttlebutt? What's going on out in the street? Tell me what people are talking about. So, well, you know, I heard, and one guy pipes up, well, I heard that people think that you're John the Baptist, reincarnated. I heard that you're uh, Elijah, prophet, Moses. I've heard you're a teacher. I heard you're a good guy. I mean, I, I heard you do great things for people. And he looked at Peter and said, well, you know what, let me ask you a question personally. Who do you say that I am? It's real personal that way. Ask yourself, as if Jesus was asking you, who do you say that I am? Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, the savior of the world, the one promised to us. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Follow that? Flesh and blood did not reveal this to him, but God who is in heaven. We will never know the identity of Jesus Christ until God reveals to us who he truly is. It is a work of God, not of man. Only God can do so. And now we're ready for the answer that Jesus is about to give. How can I make sure that when I die, that I will go to heaven? First and foremost, notice this. Jesus says, truly, truly, I'm telling you the truth, some translations say. Truly, truly, or I'm telling you the truth. And about what he's about to say is groundbreaking. It's groundbreaking. Nicodemus, who is a teacher, the teacher of Israel, when they taught, you know what they used to do? They used to quote other people. Well, Rabbi so-and-so says this. Rabbi so-and-so said that. They would quote other people because they in themselves had no authority whatsoever. But Jesus came in absolute authority because God in human flesh had the authority to say what he's about to say. 
the one who controls entrance into the kingdom of God is going to tell us quite clearly what it is required of man to enter into the kingdom of God. He says, truly, truly, I say unto you, I'm telling you the truth. There are many times when Jesus spoke, the crowds were going crazy saying, who is this teacher? Because when he speaks, he speaks with authority. It's as if he's the one who can really back up what he's saying. And there was a time where he said, hey, what's easier to say? Hey, brother, your sins are forgiven. And they said, he's a blasphemer because only God can forgive sin. He can't forgive sin unless he's God. And he said, what's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven? Or to tell this man over here who has never walked to take up his pallet and walk? And they all answered wisely. Well, it's easy to say words. Demonstrate it with your actions. So I said, in order that you know that I have the authority to forgive sin, take up your pallet and walk. And the dude stood up and he walked. Then they went back to, uh, let's see if we got this right. We said if he can make this guy walk, then he must have authority to forgive sin because only God could do what that just happened there because God was with him. If he did that, then he must be God. And if he says your sins are forgiven, he has the authority to forgive. And we don't have any choice at this point to accept him and to recognize him or deny all the evidence altogether because we just don't want to believe it. We don't want to accept it. We don't want to believe it. We don't want him telling us what we're going to do with our lives. And yet at the same time, we want them to let us into heaven when we die. Isn't that ironic? The world today says, I don't want any part of God, his authority in my life, him telling me what to do, but when I die, he better let me into heaven. How rebellious and lost are we? The truth of the matter is this. He says, unless, don't miss this, unless, there's no other way, I'm telling you the truth, this is the only way to heaven unless. One of my favorite verses is, or passages is, and this is the witness or the testimony of God, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his son. He who has the son has life, he who does not have the son of God does not have life. And these things I've written to you so that you may know you have eternal life. 1 John 5, 11 through 13 that you may know with certainty and clarity that you have eternal life. There is no better place to be in this lifetime than to know with certainty and clarity that you are a child of God. No better place to be. You will always be prepared for the day that it's appointed for you to die once and then comes judgment. You will be prepared for that moment whenever that moment comes. Whenever death knocks on your door, you will be prepared for that day. Unless though, you are what? Born again. The word born again or the phrase born again has such negative connotations in our society. It's amazing to me how people will try to run, jump, and skip away from it rather than be tagged with the label being a born again Christian. It is the most frightening thing in the world to be labeled a born again Christian. Now here's the irony of all of it. Unless you're born again, you ain't a Christian. Man, that's just the way it is. Now if it makes you feel better, the words born again actually are translated born from above. Unless you are born from above, you cannot see the kingdom of God. This is a phrase in the Gospel of John that anyone who's read the book of John is already familiar with. And if you turn back to John chapter 1, look at verse 9. There was the true light. Speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, I am the light of the world. There is the true light, verse 9, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. 
But think about what we're just talking about. His own didn't receive him. He said, well, only God could forgive sin. If you cause this man to walk and he can walk, therefore you must be God. So therefore you have the authority to forgive sin. Therefore we have a choice to receive you as our savior or to reject you and deny you. That's exactly what the, the, the struggle was. It says, is in his own, did not receive him, even with all the overwhelming evidence. It says, but, good news, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born, here we go, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so there was no question as to who they were talking about. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glories of the only begotten Father, full of grace and full of truth. You must be born again. And notice what he said. He said, you must be born of water so that we have a very clear understanding of this. Water is always symbolic of two things. One is the word of God. Sanctify them in truth, thy word is truth. The word of God is water. Symbolic all through the gospel of John that we will be cleansed with the word of God, cleansed with water, and we'll show you how it all ties together in a second. But water is always symbolic of the word of God that we will be born again of the word of God, the imperishable seed. And then he goes on and talks about, and the spirit, the Holy Spirit of God. The only way you and I can be born again is by hearing the word of God presented. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. By hearing the word of God and by a miraculous or divine act of God, the Spirit of God cleansing or awakening a dead person and bringing them to life in Christ. We are dead to God. Every human being is dead to God. The soul that sins shall die. We are dead to God and alive to sin. When God causes one to be born again, we become dead to sin and now alive to God. The intellect the emotions and the will are all involved. Let me explain how it works. You hear the word of God presented, that you are a sinner, separated from God. The fact that you and I die is because of the result of sin in our life. We hear that, we know that, here's God's standard. Have you, have you always loved the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? Well, no, I do the best I can, eh, eh, guilty. Have you always honored your father and mother? You know, I did the best I could, but eh, guilty. It'd be like hooked up to a lie detector test, you know, and every time that you, you know, you, you said, eh, you just knew it, you know what I mean? Have, have you always told the truth? Uh, yeah, lied right now, eh. <laughs> you know, it's like, so we know there's a God's standard. We all fall short of God's standard. That's the whole purpose of the law, to help us see what God already knows about us, and that is we're tragically lost, hopelessly condemned. The Word of God, as we hear it, reveals that to us. That's our intellect. We hear the good news, but God loves us anyway. And yet while we we're sinners, he sent Christ to die for us. Jesus Christ came, the savior of the world. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He sent Christ to die for us. Jesus Christ goes to the cross in your place and in my place. He sheds his blood for the forgiveness of sin for those who would believe, sufficient for all, but only applicable to those who believe. Three days later, he's raised from the dead. He's alive. And he will come again to judge the living and the dead. And because of his act of obedience to God, his sacrifice on the cross, he's been given a name highly above every other name, that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he's Lord to the glory of God. Intellectually, we hear all of these things. 
We know them to be factual. We may not like it. We may not agree with it. But even those who don't agree with it do so in ignorance because they haven't examined the facts. We hear that. Our emotions get involved. Jesus Christ, God loved me, and yet when I was in rebellion against him, he sent Christ to the cross to die for me. Oh, what great love there is. What compelling love that is, that he would die for me, even when I hated him, and I was in rebellion against him. And our emotions get involved, and the Bible says that there is an emotion. There, there, there is an emotion that is a brokenness that, that leads to repentance. God, you love me, and you sent Christ to die for me. But even the intellect and the emotions isn't enough. There's a point where we must surrender our will to his. For years, I understood intellectually. For years, I understood even to the degree that I could emotionally. But I would never, at that point, I would not surrender my will to him. See, Thomas was at that crossroad. Intellectually, I see that you are truly alive. Emotionally, I'm, I'm stirred up by what's taking place here. But then, as far as the will is concerned, there's a point where, you know what, I got to just drop on my, my knees and say, my Lord and my God. There's a point where I have got to intellectually, emotionally, in my will, say, Lord, I, I believe what you say. And I accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and my Savior. At that moment in time, the Bible says that you are born again. You have received a new nature. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. It's not a revised nature. It's not a reworked nature. It is a totally new nature. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things pass away. All things become new. As we've been going through the book of Acts, there's three outstanding conversions that we've studied. We'll go back to Acts next week. But if you remember, the Ethiopian eunuch and Cornelius and the conversion of Paul, they represent Shem, Ham, and Jepheth, the three sons of Noah. They're given to us as an illustration that God's salvation or his good news is open to all of mankind. We who are descendants of them, it's open invitation to us. Whosoever will may come. The Spirit of God, using the Word of God, proclaimed by a man of God, is how God draws men to himself. I hear people all the time say, well, Chuck, what about people that never hear the gospel? Saying, what's your point? Well, it's not fair or right that God would condemn them because they've never heard to make the choice. I say, what, are you telling me the God who knows all things doesn't know how to get a messenger to the people that he knows are his so that they can respond to the gospel message and trust in Christ and their Savior? There's one thing that you're missing in your equation, and that is we, are, we have a God who knows all things. The person who has never heard, God has never sent anyone because he already knows their heart, and they're going to reject the messenger anyway. But those who truly seek him, the Bible says clearly, will not be disappointed. Whosoever seeks the Lord shall find him, for he is not far from any of us. The person that tells me that is making excuses, and I always come back to them and say, what does that have to do with you? I am here to tell you that you are a sinner, separated from God, but God loves you anyway. And he sent his son to die on the cross in your place. And three days later, he rose him from the dead. Raised him up to the heavenly places where he will come in glory one day to judge the living and the dead. And the basis of the judgment will be this, whether you trust in him as your savior and turn from sin and turn to God and believe that Jesus Christ died for you. What is your answer to that question? Have you trusted in Christ as your savior?
If you want to be prepared, 2002 may be the year that you go from this life to the next. You may not even get out of 2001 and neither may I. But are you prepared for that day? Stop spending so much time preparing for your future. Nothing wrong with preparing for your retirement. But how about the ultimate retirement? We're all worried about 401ks and simple employee pension plans and, you know, and, and where we're going to live and if we're going to sell our house and whether we take capital gains exemption and what we're going to do when we're all planning ahead and when we're going to retire and when we're going to do this and that. And you know what? And God says, you fool, today your soul is required of you and you haven't spent any time preparing for that. Man, and nobody wants to talk about it. But every one of us will have to face it. I don't know what to say to him. But I knew if I said nothing, how empty that would be. So I said, I love you. But you know what? That's pretty empty too. Because God says, comfort each other with these words. I don't want you to be ignorant about death. I want you to know that absent from this body, you'll be present with the Lord. I want you to know that you are part of the kingdom of God. I want you to know that you are a child of God to those who receive Christ and believe in his name. I want you to know that, you know what? He whom the Father has given me, I will no wise cast out. I want you to know that nothing shall separate you from the love of Christ. Nakedness, trials, tribulation, or anything, nothing will ever separate you from the love of God that's found in Christ Jesus. I want you to know that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. But I want you to know that those who are outside of Christ have been condemned already. And he goes on and says, the illustration that he gives is a beautiful illustration from the history of the nation of Israel. When you have some time, read Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 9. What happened was this. The nation was in rebellion against God. We're getting tired of you telling us what to do. Sound familiar? We're just going to do our own thing. God said, fine, don't be deceived. God's not mocked. Whatever you sow, you're going to reap. Boom. He sends poisonous snakes to him. They start, to, they start to bite and do their work on these people who are in rebellion. How about that? You know, think about that. Now, now don't apply this at home, but I'm just thinking, you know, so how I think sometimes. It's kind of like, you know, if you, your kid starts acting up, drop a rattlesnake in his room. <laughs> That'll straighten you up real quick. But that's what God did. And these people started to get bit. And they started to get sick. And, and, and death was imminent. And you know what God said to Moses to do? Put a serpent on a stick. And hold that stick up in the air. And you tell the people, whoever looks upon that stick, they shall be healed. Sounds familiar. Whoever puts the blood of the lamb above their doorpost, the angel of death will pass over. Whoever looks up at the stick, and the snake on the stick shall be healed. Now, you know there are people going, that is the dumbest thing I ever heard. Now, I'm calling, you know, Dr. So-and-so, have him check it out first, or I'm going to go some other routes before I inevitably go there. But you know what? Bottom line was this. What makes no sense to us makes complete sense to God, for his thoughts are higher than ours, his ways are higher than ours. And you know what? God explains it very clearly. Here's what he said to do. You look at the stick and you shall be healed. And you know what happened? They looked at the stick, the snake on the stick, and they were healed. Jesus used it as this illustration. Even so, look at the Son of Man who has been lifted up for you upon a cross. If you put your faith and trust in him and in the word of God, because ultimately it comes back to the word of God. God said it, I either believe it or I reject it. What God said was, God's words were, look at the, stake, uh, the snake on the stick. They believed the word of God. They looked upon it in faith and God healed them. God says, look upon my son on the cross. 
We believe the word of God. We look to Christ. We trust in him as our savior. And he says, by his stripes, we are healed. And not only was he raised upon a cross, but he was raised from the dead. Look up to him and you shall be healed. See, I'm telling you the truth. Unless you're born again, the word of God, which convicts man of sin, causes people to turn from sin, turn back to God, understands the clarity of Jesus' death on the cross in our place, the power of his resurrection, and we trust in him and the work of God in our place, the Bible says that we will be born again in a moment of time, washed and regenerated by the spirit of God, that we will have a new nature, that will be true of each and every one of us who trust in Christ. Being born again or from above is not a way to heaven. It is not one of many options. I'm telling you the truth. It is the only way. Jesus continued with the explanation that we saw. And we see that he says to him, and no one has ascended into heaven but he who descended from it. Guess what? Who better to ask for directions than heaven than the only person that had ever been there and come down to earth at that point in time than the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, you want to know how to get there? I can tell you. I came from there. I came to here. I'm going back there. I think you can trust me. I'm telling you how to get there. The only way to get there is through me. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes unto the Father but through me. To be born again from above, one must repent of sin, turn from sin, and turn to God. One must respond with faith to the finished work of Christ upon the cross who was lifted up for you and for me and for all who believe. And then there's a surrender of the will. One must receive him as their Lord and Savior. To as many as received him, God has given us the privilege to be called children of God to those who believe in his name. And we come to what I call the Bible in a verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He gave. Think about this. At the moment that Jesus is telling this to Nicodemus, he used the verb that was past tense. He said, God so loved the world that he gave. Jesus had not yet died and he had not yet been risen from the dead, but nothing was going to stop the purpose and plan of God. Throughout all of eternity, God's plan has been the same. He would send a savior who would die upon the cross, who would be raised from the dead, that whoever would believe in him would what? Not perish but have everlasting life. He did not send Jesus into the world to condemn it, but to save it, because the world has been condemned already. And the reason the world is condemned is this, that God has sent his son, and the world has rejected the message and the messenger and what he accomplished on the cross. They like to say he's a God, one of many gods. He is a teacher and they write it off as if somehow we can slough them off into a corner with everything else and go on our way. But he is the only way, the truth and the life. And no man comes into the Father but through him. Now, for those, you know, it's fascinating as, as we put all this together. I came across an article. It was actually a letter to an editor in a, in a recent uh, newspaper magazine. And uh, since I didn't teach last week, I'm going to take five more minutes. So, I see, you know, man can justify anything. But... Um, but she, she writes this, because I, I want to tie it all together. She says, I'm a Jewish Unitarian, and as such, work hard to be accepting of all religious beliefs. But my tolerance wears a little thin when I read that only the love of Jesus Christ makes our country strong, free, and caring. That only those who accept Jesus Christ as their personal Savior are worthy of God's love. Frankly, I was quite surprised to see such a blatant advertisement for Jesus in this newspaper. 
I know countless people who believe in the teachings of Jesus Christ, but not in his divinity. How can you believe in the teachings of Jesus Christ and exclude his deity? For Jesus Christ said, If you have seen me, you have seen the Father, for I and the Father are one. Jesus said, before Abraham existed, I am. And they picked up stones to kill him for claiming to be equal to God. Jesus said, there is no other way to the Father but through me. You cannot accept the teachings of Jesus Christ and exclude or somehow or another take away his divinity or his godhood. He is God in human flesh. He never claimed to be anything less. He is the Lord. He is the God of the universe who created all things, Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things that came into being came into being through Him. In the book of Genesis, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Jesus Christ is God in human flesh, who came to seek and to save that which was lost. There is no other way to get to heaven but through Him. Unless one is born again, he will not see the kingdom of God. That is the reality of the teachings of the Word of God. The conversion that we see in the life of Nicodemus is a conversion experience we should see in every person who claims Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Nicodemus, read this on your own. When the, when the council was, was critical of Jesus, when they were condemning him, Nicodemus stood up before the council and said, hold on a second, there's something different here. He later with Joseph of Arimathea, when even all the disciples had run and hid except for John from the crucifixion site, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus went and asked for the body of Jesus Christ so that they could fulfill scripture and bury him, believing the word of God that three days from then he would be raised from the dead. He had put his faith and trust in him. He was like the thief on the cross who said, what's wrong with you, man? Don't you even know and fear God? Can you think of the incredible faith to believe something that had not yet happened? But that's what faith is, the conviction of things hoped for, right? The belief that things are going to happen exactly as God said. Joseph of Arimathea went and put Jesus' body in a tomb, knowing three days from then God would raise him from the dead. He was a follower of Jesus Christ, and he was not ashamed in front of the whole world. When even at that time his disciples ran and hid. If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, but with his mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Jesus said, if you're ashamed of me before men, I'm ashamed of you before my Father. But confess me and profess me before men, and I will know and you will know you are truly a child of God. I think as we look forward to a new year and we look forward to talking with and being with people and reasoning with them and dialoguing with them and challenging them to be ready for the inevitability of the day that it's appointed for men to die once and then comes judgment. That we who know the truth, the good news of Jesus Christ, that God loves people in spite of ourselves, that we can't clean ourselves up. The illustration is given of a pig. You take a pig into a house and you, put him, you take, give him a bath, a bubble bath, you slap some Chanel number no. 5 on him, you put him at the dining room table and he eats with everybody else and then some guests come and the door opens and the pig looks outside and he goes flying outside and the first thing he does is a backflip into the mud puddle. Clean him up all you want, dress him up all you want, but you know what? A pig is still a pig. Take your dog, put him at the table, clean him all up. And I know some of you people think your dogs are people. They're not. 
you drive around with them, you wave their little paws out the window at them. I see that, I run, and when I'm jogging, people go, hey, no, 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 you're crazy people. They're dogs. Take them to the table, dress them all up, put them in a suit, buy them some new clothes, let them eat with you. And you know what? And the next thing you know, they're jumping down from the table, running into the bathroom, and they're licking out of the toilet bowl again. They're dogs. That's their nature. And so it is with the nature of man. Take them to church, dress them up, put them in the front row, put them in the back row, hide them in the balcony, whatever. Clean you all up on the outside. Carry your big Bible with you. Have tabs in it sometimes. I don't need tabs. I know where all the books are. Clean them all up. But unless your nature is changed, you're still lost. We need a new nature. And only Jesus Christ, as we're born again, can we get a new nature. In closing, in the city of Chicago, one cold, dark night, a blizzard was setting in and a little boy was selling newspapers on the corner. The people were in and out of the cold, and the little boy was so cold he wasn't even trying to sell many papers. He walked up to a policeman and said, Mister, you wouldn't happen to know where a poor boy could find a warm place to sleep tonight, would you? I live and sleep in a box around the corner behind the dumpster in the alley, and it's been awful cold there. I sure would like a nice warm place to stay. The policeman looked down at the little boy and said, You go down the street, you see that big white house? You go down the street. And you knock on the door. And when the lady comes to the door, you say, John 3.16. And she'll let you in. So he did. Not knowing what to expect, he walked up the steps. He knocked on the door. The lady answered. And he looked up and said, John 3.16. The lady said, come on in. She took him in and she sat him down in a split bottom rocker in front of a great big old fireplace. And she went off. The boy sat there for a while and thought to himself, John 3.16. I don't understand it but it sure makes a cold boy warm. Later she came back and asked, are you hungry? And he said, yeah, just a little bit. I haven't eaten in a couple days. I guess I could eat something. The lady took him in the kitchen and sat him down at a big table full of food. He ate and he ate until he was content and he couldn't eat anymore. He thought to himself, John 3:16. Boy, I sure don't understand it, but it sure makes a hungry boy full. She took him upstairs to the bathroom to a huge bathtub filled with warm water and he sat there and he soaked for a while and as he soaked, he thought to himself, John 3.16, I don't understand it, but it sure makes a dirty boy clean. You know, I've, had, I've not had a hot bath, a real bath in my whole life. The only bath I ever had was when we opened the, the fire hydrants and stand in front of it in the summertime. The lady came, took him out, she took him to bed, tucked him into a big old feather bed, pulled the covers up around his neck, kissed him goodnight, turned out the lights. And as he lay there in the darkness and looked out the window at the snow coming down, he thought to himself, John 3.16, I don't understand it, but it sure makes a tired boy rested. The next morning, the lady came back, took him down to the same big table full of food. And after, after he ate, she took him back to the same old split bottom rocker chair in front of the fireplace. She sat down in front of him and looked into his young face and said, do you understand John 3.16? He said, no, ma'am, I don't. The first time I ever heard it was last night when the policeman told me to use it. She opened her Bible and she read, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And right there in front of that old fireplace, he gave his heart to Jesus Christ. He sat there and thought, John 3.16, I don't understand it, but it sure makes a lost boy feel safe.
And I'll be the first to tell you, I don't understand it. I don't understand as I look back on my life and the kind of person that I was that God would be in pursuit of me, that God would love me, who blasphemed the name of Jesus Christ, who made fun of people who claimed to have faith in him, who denied that there was any reliability or evidence whatsoever worth considering in the Bible, who lived my own selfish life. I, I know, I'm telling you right now, I don't understand. I don't understand a love that would pursue someone like me. But I can tell you this, that having experienced it firsthand, I can tell you that God's word is trustworthy. If you believe upon him, you shall be saved. Examine the evidence with your mind. And as your intellect leads you emotionally to the point where I was at a point in my life where I was broken and humbled by a love that would compel me to draw closer to him. There's a point where you need to surrender your heart and your will. You need to receive him as your Lord and Savior. And I know from experience that there are some of you in various stages of that process. But when it all comes together, intellect, emotion, and will, the Bible says when you receive Christ, that you're born from above, not of the will of the flesh, but of the will of God. It's a work of God. It's a miracle of God so that none of us can ever boast. If you want to be ready for the day that's appointed unto you to die once, and then comes judgment, I beg you to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ today for the forgiveness of your sins. For we don't know what today even holds, but we know who holds the future. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I'm telling you the truth. You can trust me. There is no other way you're getting into heaven but through me. Look upon the cross and the power of his resurrection. Trust in him as your savior, and you shall be saved. Do we understand it? No, but we can experience it, and we can look at the evidence. Jesus said, just as the wind blows,